0: Chapter thirteen of the Sacred Herb by Fergus Hume This Levervox recording is in the public domain Lanwin Grange In the exercise of his profession, a legitimate detective would have waited to question Mrs. Rover. Since she had said so much, he would have forced her to say all, in order to get at the truth as speedily as possible. But Lord Prelice was new to the business, and his emotions were not entirely under control. On leaving Alexander Mansions, he felt that he was in possession of a most dangerous and perilous secret, the publication of which would cause even a greater sensation than that produced by the crimes themselves. The shock of learning that Mrs. Rover was the woman who had been brought by Agstone into Number Forty was very great and quite confused Prelice's usual strong brain. He did not dare to call again on Shepworth, lest he should say too much. It will be seen that Prelice, being an untrained detective, jumped somewhat hastily to a conclusion. Mrs. Rover had admitted that she wore the dress, the mask, and the domino which Shepworth had seen on The Unknown Lady, but Constance did not know that Ned had so described her appearance, and if she had, would probably not have admitted that she had assumed such a costume at her ball mask. But the mere fact that, even in ignorance of Shepworth's description, she had, as the saying goes, given herself away, should have proved to Lord Prelice that she could not be guilty had mrs Rover entered Number forty in Agstone's company, and had she struck the blow, she assuredly would not have incriminated herself so unthinkingly. Rather would she have denied that the frock mentioned by Prelice belonged to her. After the first shock, and while Prelice was in the train going to Hyde, he began to revise his earlier opinion on the above mentioned grounds. His common sense came to his aid and told him that, if guilty, Mrs. Rover would not have confessed even to a half-truth. Certainly had she not done so, her maid, knowing what dress her mistress wore at the ball, might have blurted out the secret. But then, so far as the world knew, no inquiry would have been made about the wearer of that especial frock. Of course, assuming that in a thoughtless moment Mrs. Rover had foolishly confessed the truth, Prelice could find a motive for her behavior in committing the crime. It might be that Agstone wished to kill Ned, and that Mrs. Rover, to save the life of the man she loved, had struck down the sailor unawares. Having committed the deed, she could easily slip back to her own flat and mingle with the massed crowd. But then again, as Prelice further argued, while the train drew near to the coast, Mrs. Rover must have known that in murdering Agstone, she was not only securing the freedom of Mona Chent, whom she hated, but also was placing her lover in a dangerous position. Agstone was a necessary witness for the prosecution, whom Shepworth, of all men, did not wish to see placed in the box. So the supposition would be, were the man found dead in Number 40, that Shepworth had killed him to save Mona Chant. As a matter of fact, this is exactly what had taken place, and in saving Ned from the sailor's knife, Mrs. Rover, always presuming that she was guilty, had simply condemned her lover to a death on the scaffold. But that Prelice had been clever enough to admit the crowd of guests, so that all might see the barrister's helpless position— it is certain that the man would have been arrested and probably sentenced to death since it would have been extraordinarily difficult for him to clear his character in the face of circumstances therefore on these assumptions for that they were and no more prelice after much reflection decided that mrs rover was innocent Finally, the young man recollected that a woman dressed as described by Ned, in the costume which Mrs. Rover confessed to wearing, had passed down the stairs while he was waiting for entrance to number 40, and immediately before the discovery of the crime. She could scarcely have been Mrs. Rover, for as that lady could have easily proved an alibi by returning to her guests and casually unmasking at the right moment— it would have been useless for her to leave the mansions. Of course, the lady, whether Mrs. Rover or a stranger, certainly might have followed Prelice down to the door, knowing that he would be certain to discover the tragedy, and might merely have descended to return to the ballroom overhead when the young man entered Shepworth's flat. But then again, the person in question could not have known that Prelice masked and unknown, was going to enter number forty, so there would be no reason to track him there. And to conclude, the murderess, if a woman was guilty, must have known that Shepworth, being in a cataleptic state, must have seen and remembered her very peculiar frock. On the whole, Prelice arrived at certain conclusions by no means inimical to Mrs. Rover by the time he alighted at Hyde Station. He believed that Constance was innocent for four reasons. Firstly, if guilty, she would not have confessed to wearing the dress, since such a confession would necessarily lead to her detection. Secondly, by killing Agstone, she would not only have placed Shepworth in a dangerous position— but by getting rid of an inconvenient witness would have enabled Mona to escape possible condemnation. Thirdly, she would not have followed an unknown man, as Prelice was by reason of his mask and domino, down the stairs with the intention of seeing what took place. Fourth, and lastly, she would not have sought safety in an incriminating flight, as the similarly dressed woman on the stairs apparently had, when she would have been much safer in her own ballroom and amongst her own guests. Only by such a course could she have provided an alibi. No, Mrs. Rover, in spite of her startling admission, was innocent, and the sole conclusion that Prelice could arrive at was the existence of a double, outwardly at all events he remembered the extraordinary ubiquity of the green domino in the red-streaked white dress and decided very naturally that there was another woman in the field but what woman possessed a motive sufficiently strong to urge her to murder agstone as prelice felt quite worn out with arguing in mrs rover's defense he decided to leave the answering of this new question to the pretentious moment when further evidence might reveal the identity of the unknown lady. Meanwhile, on arriving at Hyde, he rested himself at a quiet hotel and soothed his troubled brain with an hour's necessary sleep. Later on, after an invigorating bath and an excellent dinner, he started to walk towards Lanwin Grange. It was summer and romance was in the air. At least Prelice scented its presence, by some sixth sense he was going to see the girl he loved the girl with whom he had not as yet exchanged a single word therefore although past the peacock age he was particularly attentive to his appearance when assuming his evening clothes as he strolled inland along the leafy lanes through the july warmth of the twilight this somewhat premature wooer Looked as comely and well groomed a swain as any damsel not demanding an Apollo could desire. And it was a great proof of Prelice's infatuation that in looking forward to meeting Mona he almost forgot that he was merely the emissary of the man to whom the girl was engaged. The whole position was extraordinarily queer. He adored this girl without being personally acquainted with her. She was a finance to his best friend, and yet he could not be certain if that same best friend really loved the girl herself. Even a paley royal force could offer no more fantastic complication than this. Prelis felt that, after running round the wild world in search of the unusual, he had returned to find romance sitting on his doorstep. The way to the family seat of the land twisted inland and uphill through deep lanes and umbrageous woods. On emerging high up from the belt of trees, Prelice found himself on a wide, unshaded road, snaking over bare downs. For some distance he toiled upward. Then the road mounted a rise to slip down into a cup-shaped hollow brimmed with cultivated woods. In the midst of these he saw an old gray house, seemingly prevented from falling to pieces by the ivy which covered its moldering walls. From the lips of the hollow stretched the rolling, grassy downs, dotted with nibbling sheep, gray in the shadows of the coming night. But it was not yet night, for the sky was filled with a luminous light, all pervading, yet emanating from no certain point. A breathless peace brooded over the vast treeless uplands, and an even deeper peace seemed to enwrap the ancient mansion. It appeared to be the veritable palace of the sleeping beauty, set amidst enchanted woods. And Prelice thrilled with the idea that beauty herself, awake and unkissed, awaited some prince in the seclusion of her fairy castle following the road which here grew somewhat narrower lord prelice descended into the hollow passed under the shade of overhanging trees and came out into a kind of artificial glade smooth with carefully tended lawns and brilliant with flowers the grange itself was somewhat sunken in the ground, entirely level with the lawns, and looked like part of the woods themselves, so clothed was it with darkly green ivy. There appeared a weather worn escutcheon over the great doorway, and lights gleamed from oriel windows in the east but to the left Prelice saw the three tall French windows opening on to a wide terrace which had been referred to at the trial. These windows appeared quite out of keeping with the Tudor architecture of the mansion, but the visitor eyed them with great interest. It was through one of these windows that Agstone and Jadby had looked, to see the tragedy of Sir Oliver's death and had that not taken place, Prelice might never have been brought into contact with the most charming girl in the world. His heart beat loudly as he rang the bell. Afterwards, Lord Prelice never could explain clearly how he had first come into the presence of his goddess. In a bewildered manner, he waited in the antique hall. After delivering his card to a pompous footman, and in a bewildered manner was led into a long, low, wide drawing room with orioles at the farther end, brilliant with family crests in stained glass. So far as he could recollect, he did not look at the cumbersome Georgian furniture, or at the aggressively modern grand piano, which seemed to be out of place, or at the portraits of cavaliers and their ladies decking the mellow walls, or even at the painted ceiling, or the carpet tinted with rainbow colors subdued by time to grateful sobriety. He had no eyes, save for a tall, slim girl, arrayed in a white dress, with a somewhat pale-worn face who welcomed him in the sweetest of voices and with the most grateful of smiles. I am glad to see Ned's best friend, she said, and her voice sounded like fairy music in the newcomer's ravished ears. And to thank him. To thank me, muttered Prelice, staring at the lovely face in the mellow lamplight. I saw you in that terrible court, she said swiftly, and the way in which you looked at me gave me comfort. Other people, my friends, they call themselves, "'stared as though I were a wild animal. "'But you, Lord Prelice, "'She threw out her hands with an eloquent gesture full of grace. "'Ned wrote and told me that you were his friend. "'I am here to be yours also,' stuttered Prelice, "'suppressing a wild desire to kneel and worship. "'We are friends already. "'It does not need words to confirm a friendship "'offered and accepted mutely and with gratitude.' prelice felt more bewildered than ever here was a girl so entirely unconventional that she defied the usages of society which prescribed the etiquette for a primary meeting between bachelor and maid it was marvelously sweet to be thus greeted but prelice must have revealed his delighted surprise too clearly for miss chent laughed "'I am afraid that my proffer of unmasked for friendship surprises you,' she said smilingly. "'But you see, my poor uncle instructed me somewhat in psychology, and I look at the inner rather than the outer. "'You said yourself, Miss Chint, that the friendship was asked for in court,' said Prelice earnestly. "'And it was. As Ned's best friend, I claim to be yours also. I bring a message from Ned.' "'You shall deliver it presently,' said Mona, turning to a stout, white-haired gentleman with a genial face who was standing near the window silently. "'Just now you must allow me to introduce Mr. Martaban, another loyal friend. Also,' she waved her hand towards a spindle-legged Versailles table as the two men shook hands. "'You must have some coffee.' prelice accepted gratefully as he would have taken poison from the hands of this delightful girl so long as she served it as she did the coffee with her own white hands martaban took a cup also and resumed the seat from which he had risen when prelice entered miss chent pointed out a chair to her visitor and herself reclined on a louis Tray sofa then the three began to talk on immediate and earthly matters and Prelice was forced to descend from transcendental heights. In that room at that hour, and in the presence of such an angel, it seemed desperately hard to abandon romance for reality. But there was no help for it. Ned's message? questioned Mona anxiously. He is all right and will be down as soon as he can get away, replied the emissary. "'delivering the exact words of his friend. "'Then you don't think that he is in danger of being accused of this second crime?' "'No, no,' interposed Martaban, in a genial but authoritative voice. "'I have told you before, and I tell you again, "'that under the circumstances no one can accuse Mr. Shepworth.' And that," added the solicitor, bowing towards the young man, "is due, my lord, to your wise action in admitting the crowd to see Mr Shepworth insensible. Prelice nodded his thanks. Ned is perfectly safe," he said quietly. Mona clasped her hands with a thankful gesture. "I am so glad-I am so thankful," she whispered softly. He has been a dear, good friend in standing by me when I so sadly needed help. Oh, Prelice was rather indignant. Seeing that he is something more than a friend to you, Miss Chent. he could scarcely fail to lay himself and his life at your feet. It is only what an English gentleman would do to any lady he respected, much less loved. Mona colored and turned aside her face, rather embarrassed by the impetuous outbreak of her lover's friend. "'Both English gentlemen and English ladies held aloof when I was in danger,' she said simply, "'so you can understand how much I prize the friendship both of Ned and of Mr. Martaban here, seeing that they never believed that I was guilty.' "'No one could believe that.' cried Prelice, still impetuous and throwing his usual discretion to the winds. The moment I set eyes on your face, I knew that you were innocent. Miss Chint colored again, and rather retreated from the confidential attitude she had assumed. Prelice was going ahead too fast, and her womanly nature, in spite of occult training, was taking alarm. I must say that, seeing you did not know me— the belief was somewhat rash, she rejoined coldly. However, I thank you. And you will allow me to help you? asked Prelice eagerly but timidly. Help Miss Chent? said the lawyer, looking keenly at the young man's glowing face. In what way? Prelice laid down his cup, crossed his legs, and delivered himself of his opinion. It was just as well that both Mona and Martaban should learn of his determination to enter into their lives. Everyone is delighted, with few exceptions, he said, somewhat incoherently to the girl, that you have been acquitted, but some insist that you must be guilty. Forgive me for inflicting pain, he added rapidly, but it is necessary so that you may entirely understand me. You are safe from the law, Miss Chent. But with some idiots, your character is not yet clear. Also, Ned, in spite of the absurdity of the thing, may be accused of making away with Steve Agstone in your interests. In order to set everything right, it is necessary for us to make certain who killed your uncle and who killed the sailor. But Agstone killed Sir Oliver, said Martaban quickly the evidence of the paper cutter which quite so quite so interrupted lord prelice hurriedly and skating quickly over this thin ice but we can't prove agstone's guilt beyond all doubt without further evidence for miss chent's sake the truth whatever it may be must be made public and what do you think is the truth demanded martaban puzzled prelice "'Bearing Miss Rover in mind, shuffled again. "'I am not prepared to give an opinion offhand,' he replied politely. "'But what I wish you and Miss Chent to understand is "'that Ned Shepworth has accepted my services "'towards hunting down the Arthur or Arthurs of this double crime. "'I wish Miss Chent, if she will, to accept them also.' "'Willingly and with gratitude,' said Mona." "'extending her slim hand. "'Prelice contrived to press it in a friendly way and not kiss it, "'as he felt strongly inclined to do, but the effort was great. "'Then we can go ahead,' he said easily, "'and as I am now admitted to the inner circle, as it were, "'I should like to know exactly how matters stand. "'About you, Miss Chent, for instance. "'Do you remain here?' The girl flushed and glanced, rather embarrassed at her lawyer. "'Yes,' replied the latter. "'Captain Jadby, who it undoubtedly inherits, now that the second will has been destroyed, has made no move towards assuming possession of his property. Moreover, there are certain legal formalities to be gone through before he can become the legitimate master of the Grange. Until everything is straight—' I suggest that Miss Chint remains in her home. It is not my home, but Captain Jadby's, answered the girl, coloring painfully. I would much rather go away. But, she added piteously, yet with a proud effort of self-restraint, I have nowhere to go to. Uncle Oliver has disinherited me, and my parents died insolvent. If I leave the Grange, I go into the world penniless and alone prelice winced at the picture she drew there is always ned he remarked lamely miss Chent shot a swift glance at his distressed face and answered coldly in his own words yes there is always ned the young man felt more puzzled than ever her voice did not sound like that of a girl in love and as he had gathered from constance the man mona was engaged to had not given her his heart but if this was the case and it was beginning to appear obvious why had the two agreed to marry prelis did not know what to say so miss chent seeing his embarrassment explained in a somewhat embarrassed fashion herself ned is poor she remarked with deliberate self-control he has his way to make in the world It would never do for me to burden him with a pauper wife. Two are stronger than one, Miss Chen. There is strength in unity. Not in this case, she retorted, and quietly dismissed the subject. Will you come to my house, my dear, said Mardavan, who seemed to be devoted to his luckless client. My wife will be glad to have you. So will Aunt Sophia, interposed Prelice quickly and struck with a brilliant idea. "'You know my aunt, Miss Chent. Lady Sophia Harkin, she is a friend of yours.' "'Save yourself, Mr. Mardavan,' and Ned. "'I have had no friend since I was put on my trial for murder,' said Mona in a level voice. "'I decline to trouble any person until my innocence is proved.' it has been proved at the trial said prelice and mr martaban echoed the speech legally but not socially she rejoined rising i accept your services lord prelice learn who killed my uncle and who stabbed poor agstone and earn she faltered and earn my my gratitude prelice looked disappointed yet what else could the girl say End of chapter 13